I have hopes that CBD is going to be a good product for us, but what is happening at the moment is quite concerning. That was Dr. Mary Ann Fitzcharles, our guest on Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel Ennis. I'm a rheumatologist at the University of British Columbia. I'll be your host. Welcome to Around the Room, a podcast series where we discuss the biggest issues facing Canadian rheumatologists with the leading experts in the field. One of those leading experts is Dr. Mary Ann Fitzcharles. She's an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Rheumatology at McGill University and a pain medicine physician at the Allen Edwards Pain Management Unit. She is the lead author of the CRA position statement on medical cannabis published earlier this year in the Journal of Rheumatology. And that's what we'll be talking about today. In Canada, the legalization of medical cannabis in 2001 and recreational legalization in 2018 have had broad impacts, including in the healthcare sector. As noted in the position statement, 250,000 users of medical cannabis are now registered with Health Canada. Marianne, welcome to Around the Room. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. From snowy, snowy Montreal. <laughs> I'm from rainy Vancouver over here. So I want to start us off by uh, talking about uh, the position statement and specifically, why was this the right moment to create this particular position statement? Well, there were a number of things that sort of fell together and uh, was really a, a focus for us to move ahead. Um, in the first instance, rheumatologists are being asked continuously on a daily basis about medical cannabis. And um, the first thing we did was we polled the rheumatology community to get an idea of uh, the comfort that rheumatologists might have regarding cannabis. And our polling was not surprising, but most rheumatologists felt very uncomfortable, didn't really know very much about uh, medical cannabis, and secondly, were being asked continuously by their patients. So in this context, as the therapeutics committee, we wondered how to move forward with this. So ideally, medical communities should develop guidelines. And you can only have guidelines if you've got evidence. There is no evidence for the use of cannabinoids in rheumatic diseases. So that meant we couldn't really develop guidelines. Our next step was to say, well, let's develop a consensus statement which would be very good. But we realized we were dealing with such a contentious subject that it would probably be very difficult to get consensus. So we decided our next third option would be to develop a position statement. And in this context, a position statement had to be pragmatic because of the tremendous lack of evidence. So that was how we went ahead. And um, I think it has been very timely because uh, there have not been position statements by other bodies. And our position statement has been very nicely taken up by the international community. Why do you think uh, patients are now in the process of like seeking these natural alternatives? Why are we being asked by patients about cannabis in particular? Right. So as a practicing rheumatologist, you know as well that um, our treatments are 
quite good for inflammatory arthritis. But, but even so, our patients still persist with having remaining pain. Um, 30% of patients have an ongoing associated fibromyalgia. So pain is a very prominent feature for our patients. The treatments we have, particularly for pain, are not very good. They have a lot of side effects. And the two big categories of treatments that we have are the anti-inflammatories and the opioids. And uh, with the great concerns about both of these agents, uh, clearly patients are seeking help from other means. There's been a huge media push um, and advocacy regarding cannabis. And um, our patients really are exploring this treatment option that is perceived to be more natural and less harmful than current treatments. That's interesting. So what actually drew you to this area of research in the first place? So I've straddled rheumatology and pain medicine for many, many years. And as a clinician, we listen to patients. And um, patients were the ones that really directed us into exploring the effects of cannabis. So um, it really is our patients have, uh, have moved us forward. Do you have any examples from your clinical practice uh, with your patients where you've seen major benefits or also major harms with cannabinoids? Absolutely. And uh, as a rheumatologist, I do prescribe medical cannabis to selected patients. It's not a treatment that we should be giving to all our patients. I've seen patients that have done extremely well, and I will tell you about one of the first patients that came to us using medical cannabis. And she was a lady who had a severe pain syndrome. She had had a thalamus stroke, which we know causes terrible, terrible pain. And I saw her because she had spasticity of an arm, and um, the physician considered that she had an arthritis. She did not have an arthritis. She was on, and she came to us in the pain center. She was on a huge dose of opioids. She'd had a deep brain stimulator. It was really an awful, awful situation. And her family, this was probably about 15 years ago, her family suggested she try cannabis, which was totally illegal at that time. And they grew it in the backyard for her. And she took cannabis and she smoked it. And quite amazingly, we've actually reported her um, she came off her opioids, which was unbelievable. And she really had important effect on her movement. She was able to get out of a wheelchair. And it was clearly a little miracle. But this was a single, very discreet patient. We see patients using cannabis oils now. And um, these are a concern because... They are accessing CBD oils from artisanal sources, and we know that it's very unreliable. We really don't know what's in these artisanal bottles. I've seen patients who have used these oils, and probably when we look to see how much we think they are getting, they're probably getting less than two milligrams a day, and reporting really, really good effect. 
my big question is, is this a huge placebo effect? Which it might be, I don't know. If they're using a small amount of agent, they're not getting any side effects, they're tolerating it well, I have no problems with a patient feeling better. We have seen patients who have had very important side effects, even from their little bottle of CBD oil. So um, recently, one of my uh, elderly gentlemen with osteoarthritis was given a few drops of CBD oil at night by his wife, and he fell out of bed. Now, would he have fallen out of bed without that? But we know that the CBD oil certainly in Canada from the growers contains a little bit of THC. So this might have been a THC effect. We've seen patients who've developed important anxiety on cannabinoids. And um, we've also seen patients who just say, I just don't feel good. I just don't feel right in my brain. I feel a little fuzzy, cognitively not totally clear. But I must admit, I have not seen any, in our rheumatology practice, have not seen any very severe side effects. Clearly, our emergency room physicians are seeing lots of young people coming in, not necessarily patients using medical cannabis, but young people coming in with important psychosis. I want to come back to the contraindications and cautions that you mentioned in the paper. Uh, but first, can you describe to me the different drug preparations and the different ways that it can be administered and which you consider to be safe and which you would suggest against? Okay. So I think we've got to think of cannabinoids in two categories. We have to think of the pharmaceutical preparations. And in Canada, we have two. We have nabilone. And we have a second preparation, which is called nabiximols. And nabiximols is essentially a combination of THC and CBD, and it's an oral spray. It's very expensive. And in Canada, it's accepted for spasticity with multiple sclerosis. So those are the pharmaceutical preparations that are available. With regard to the medical cannabis, which is the herbal product. We have these available from the growers. We write a medical document. It's not actually a prescription. The patient then accesses this product from the grower. It's available as dried product, which patients can smoke. Ideally, we don't like our patients to roll a joint and smoke. Patients do use it as a vaping uh, product. And um, vaping with a vaping machine at home probably does not have the risks associated with vaping that we see with the e-cigarettes. Um, there are the oils. And the oils are essentially extractions from the herbal product. They contain variable amounts of THC and CBD. So in Canada, the um, growers produce cannabis with a THC level up to almost 30%. The studies that have been done in patients are mostly 9%, and there's been a single study of 12.5%. So you sort of say, why are the growers, and the growers are doing two things. They are um, 
catering to the recreational market as well as to the medicinal market. But there is absolutely no evidence that our patients should be using cannabis with a THC content above 12.5%. So the generally, if I'm prescribing cannabis, I choose an oil first. I will request that the patient has very low THC, less than ideally 1%, if that's possible, and a high CBD content. We generally say begin with about the equivalent of 2.5 milligrams at night to see how you tolerate, and then slowly going up. Our guidance for how much to use is um, really, it's we don't really know. And we've used guidance from what patients are using, as well as the nabiximols. So nabiximols, which is that spray, um, each spray is about 2.5 milligrams of THC, 2.5 milligrams of CBD. So that's sort of a, a rule of thumb of how to go ahead. And you mentioned that there's not really great data on the higher levels of THC. Why do we want THC in there at all? It was my understanding from some of the literature that you had pointed me to that it was really the cannabinols that are the, the more analgesic therapeutic agent. And THC has more of the... The high one. The high one. So it's, t it's terribly, terribly complex. And it probably is an interaction between all of these multiple molecules. So the cannabis plant itself has been called the plant of a thousand molecules. So the two that we really have great interest in is THC and CBD. However, there's all these other molecules. There are cannabinoid molecules, there are terpenes, there are flavonoids. And there is a question as to whether it maybe is a combination of different molecules that really has the clinical effect. And patients who have been using cannabis, so even if you've got a particular strain of plant, depending upon what the weather has been, where the plant has been grown, how much light it had, how much fertilizer it had, the molecular content of the particular strain will change. So we will hear patients saying, you know, I, I've got my cannabis from a particular grower, I've got exactly the same strain, and I got a delivery this week, and it's not the same. And the reason is because it's plants change. Interesting. So how do you actually go about becoming a grower? Who's in charge of that? Uh, <laughs> I'm asking for a friend, not for myself. I, I've, I've, it's very complex. And what we also do know is that the growers are not doing very well in Canada. The reason is that it's uh, very expensive to grow effectively. Um, you've got to have proper light, you've got to have warmth, etc. So you do much better if you're in a nice sunny climate in South America and growing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we have had great difficulties in accessing proper product according to good manufacturing process to actually move ahead with clinical studies. So the GMP standards have got to be 
uh, acknowledged and have got to be followed through if we do any clinical studies. And um, I'll tell you that we've been kicking our heels around for nearly three years to try to initiate a dose finding study because Health Canada has just not accepted the GMP process by the individual company. Do we, is, is there a way around that or is that uh, inherent to the, the business no. itself? It's not the business. It's, it's how drugs have to be manufactured with good process. So Health Canada is looking at the individual grower and they have got to fulfill certain criteria. And if those criteria are not fulfilled, the product is not acceptable even for clinical trial. So it's, it's very complex at the moment. Let's skip to some of the side effects that you had mentioned. I'd like to dig a little bit more into that. The risk of addiction that you had quoted in your paper was about 9% in regular recreational cannabis use. But it is my impression that uh, the majority of people, myself included, hadn't really considered it as an addictive drug or medication, the way we use that word for other drugs and medications. Right. Can you speak to that at all? Right. So this is, this is actually a very important point. And this is a point that we honestly do not know how it's going to play out with our patients. So we do know that for all cannabis users across the board, addiction is 9%. For people that have started using cannabis in adolescence, the rate of addiction is much greater it probably goes up to almost 25%. And the rate of addiction for daily cannabis users is between 30 and 50%. So it's high, high. Now, if you think of our patients, we anticipate that a patient who is going to be using an agent for symptom relief is likely to be using an agent probably on a daily basis, probably more often than just once or twice a week. And we honestly do not know what the addiction potential is going to be with our patients. It probably is much more related to the THC rather than CBD, but it is something that we have to keep in mind. And particularly, particularly for, I think of these young people, adolescents, with JIA, ankylosing spondylitis, and we hear more and more the pediatric rheumatologists are hearing from their patients that yes, cannabis does make them feel better, and it probably does. You know, I, the, the group of patients that really need to be studied are those with ankylosing spondylitis because they have uh, moderate control with the biologic treatments. However, most of them still have some pain at night. And we think of these young people beginning to use cannabis, and we don't know how it's going to pan out. So that's kind of frustrating because if there's definitely interest in a young patient population, and that's a patient population that does have these chronic painful symptoms, JAA or, or ankylosing spondylitis, but the data as described in the paper, one of the recommendations is actually that for young people, they should actually avoid uh, medical cannabis. Right. Can you talk about the data behind that? So, Is it based on the addiction right. risk? So, 
No, no, not at all. It's based on neuronal development. So we know that the endocannabinoid system is really important for the development of the nervous system. And the way it works, um, the cannabinoids really help direct the neuronal circuitry. So even in the fetus, there is very active cannabinoid activity. The brain continues to develop until 21 in women, 25 in men. Men take a little, they, they, they mature a little more slowly. And this brain development is very, very dependent upon the cannabinoid system. And we have great concerns about interfering with this brain development. What we do know is there's been a beautiful study done in New Zealand where they followed young, it was a birth cohort. They followed a few thousand children for a period of 32 years. And what they've identified is that, and they, they've looked at many, many factors. They were not just looking at cannabis. They were looking at psychosocial environment, cigarettes, alcohol, the whole lot. And cannabis was associated with reduced lifetime achievement, less education, more mental health illness in the young adults. You mentioned the mental health component there, and that's emphasized in the position statement that patients with personal or family histories of certain mental health disorders should avoid medical cannabis. Can you talk a little bit more about that data? So there is now incontrovertible evidence that cannabis is a risk for, I wouldn't say development of psychosis, but in a person with a predisposition for psychosis, cannabis is an important trigger. This is solid evidence that has been repeated in many different settings. So a younger person exposed to cannabis, risk of psychosis. Number one, the evidence for uh, aggravating mood disorders is less solid. So there are studies looking at reduction of anxiety, and this is the studies are not very good. They mostly have been looking at social anxiety, and it seems that cannabis maybe does attenuate this. The problems with depression are really all over the place. So we do not have any solid statement to make regarding cannabis and aggravating or improving depression. I had seen in some of your writing elsewhere that there was also some evidence or some signal towards or concern about suicidality in patients who use medical cannabis. Absolutely. And um, you're right, I should have mentioned that as well, but there is a risk of suicidality, particularly in someone who has previously had suicide ideation, suicide attempts, and it is a contraindication. So there's a lot of things that we, you as the physician, need to really think about before writing a prescription or before even kind of signing off, giving the okay to use it. Was there anything that actually surprised you while you were researching and writing the position statement that you came across in the research? 
Um, did anything surprise me? I would probably say not really surprising. I think a few things became a little clearer, a little more obvious. Um, I did have to look at the literature regarding, you know, fetal development. And um, it's very interesting that cannabinoids are quite important in the implantation of the blastocyst. So in the very, very early stages of pregnancy, when um, there's been fertilization, the cannabinoids are very operative in how the blastocyst, before it's even a little fetus, gets implanted. So, you know, there's the, there are a lot of nuances. So that was the one little thing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, and this will apply to our rheumatic disease patients, cannabis has been touted by many of the dispensaries as a safe product to use in pregnancy for nausea. And in fact, what we've said is this is dangerous and it should not be used. So your young rheumatic disease patient who maybe has been on methotrexate and comes off methotrexate and doesn't, isn't on a biologic and has a flare of the rheumatoid, you do not want during pregnancy, you do not want to use in pregnancy. So that's the one thing. The other area that I had to really delve into, and um, this is topical agents. And I think our patients really are looking to use topicals. They use a lot of anti-inflammatory topicals. We had some hope for capsaicin. Capsaicin hasn't been very good. Um, and now there's uh, topical cannabis. And um, we must remember that cannabis is lipophilic. So if you put a lipophilic agent on your skin, it doesn't get absorbed unless you've got a transfer mechanism that's going to let it go through. But these artisanal agents that is put on the skin, they only get down to the epidermis. So I think this is also something that we need to think about. There was a very, very nice study done on topical CBD. It was done in Australia on osteoarthritis of the knee. Um, they presented their findings in abstract form at a, at a uh, meeting. It's not been uh, published as a paper. The primary outcome was not achieved. They didn't have a very good primary, but generally overall, it was well tolerated. They had this proper agent that was able to penetrate down into the lipophilic area or into the deeper tissues. Um, but unfortunately, the company is not moving ahead with the product. Oh, that's a shame. It is a shame. So I, I, reading this paper, I really thought that this was a work of patient advocacy. It's an issue that patients brought to physicians. And in the absence of information, physicians are trying to give reasonable uh, answers. So does that also come with other responsibilities for rheumatologists? Do we need to actively participate or organize research? And do we have to learn how to prescribe medical cannabis? Is that something that other rheumatologists should integrate into their practice? So, you know, over the years, um, as rheumatologists, we have had to become aware of the complexities of our patients. 
So we pay attention now to lipid profile. We pay attention to bone health. We have been somewhat negligent of addressing pain. And it's sort of been, well, you know, your joint count is good, so that's fine. And we've not been um, as aware of the pain component of our patients with rheumatic diseases. And we know now that this is a very, very important area of suffering. Pain reduces quality of life. And we really have to address this. So I think that cannabis is not going to go away. We must keep ourselves as informed as possible. But I will tell you, unfortunately, we're not seeing very much good quality evidence coming through. Where do you think patients should turn for trustworthy information on this topic? So certainly uh, CRA and their physicians should be the first, the first step. Um, the Arthritis Society has put out some information on medical cannabis. It was a little, little premature, and they very, very quickly, uh, uh, I think it was about two years ago, the focus of the pamphlet was how to access medical cannabis. But there is some good information there. Um, the Arthritis Foundation in the U.S. has just put out a um, statement for patients on CBD. And I know that they are now working on a position statement, or not a position statement, but a patient information statement on cannabis. So there is access. But, you know, I, I encourage patients and I encourage rheumatologists to have an open dialogue with their patients. And I think we're at the forefront. Absolutely. We're at the forefront of an openness to cannabis in Canada. What do you hope that listeners will take away from the position statement? Um, I hope that our rheumatologists will remain empathetic, will remain with an open mind, but still have all our knowledge and our advice to patients grounded in evidence-based medicine. I think you're absolutely right that there's sometimes a distance between us feeling that the disease is treated well from our perspective and a patient's perspective that the disease is treated well from their perspective. And we may call that damage um, from arthritis or from their disease. But I think that patients still see that as part of their ongoing disease. And maybe there's space in there for cannabinoids to bridge some of that gap, at least. I would, I would hope so. And uh, I, I would really, really like to see uh, some more good studies. I have a great hope that CBD, you know, not just pure CBD, but CBD with some terpenes and flavonoids and all that, I have great hope that it might be something that we can add to our toolbox. Marianne, thank you so much for chatting with me today. That was fun. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the evening. You too. That was Dr. Mary Ann Fitzcharles, the author of the article, A Pragmatic Approach for Medical Cannabis and Patients with Rheumatic Diseases, published in the May 2019 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology. Like me, you may not be trained to prescribe medical cannabis or have much experience with it. However, as Dr. Fitzcharles points out, its use is common and our patients are going to ask us difficult but reasonable questions about it. 
In the absence of good data for benefit in our patients, I don't think we should just excuse ourselves from the conversation. We can, instead, take on an advocacy role for educating ourselves on the treatment principles and contraindications for use of medical cannabis. As a group, we can support or even guide future research on an important topic. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. If you enjoyed your time with us, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and share this podcast with your colleagues and on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.